to another edition of the UK Law Weekly Podcast with me, your host, Marcus Cleaver. This week we're going to be looking at the case of Morris Garner and One Step Support Limited, and the citation for this case is 2018 UKSC 20. And this case is actually a little sad because it is a dispute between people whose ultimate goal is to help people. In particular, it was in 1999 that Morris Garner set up a business that looked to support young people leaving care. Three years later, the business was incorporated as One Step Support Limited so that half of the company could be sold to Mr and Mrs Costello. The idea was that the service would then be run together, drawing upon expertise from both sides, but unfortunately, as is often the case when money is involved, the relationship began to fall apart. In fact, by August 2006, things were so bad that Mrs Costello activated something called a deadlock notice, a part of the shareholders' agreement that forced Morris Garner to choose between either buying Costello's shares or selling her own shares. She decided to sell and got £3.15 from the deal, but the important fact to remember for this case is that both parties agreed to be bound by a restrictive covenant that prevented the appellants from either competing with One Step or trying to attract its customers away for three years. The problem was that by this point, Morris Garner had already started a new company called Positive Living that began trading in 2007, only one year after the deadlock notice, and was a successful competitor with One Step. In fact, it was so successful that in 2012, the appellants sold their shares for £12.8 million. The present case, therefore, is about the breach of the restrictive covenant, and in particular the amount of damages that should be paid. Currently, this is worked out on the basis of a case called Rotham Park Estate Company and Parkside Homes Limited from 1974, so the claimant receives the amount that would have reasonably been agreed in order to release the defendant from the covenant. It was this method that was challenged in the Supreme Court, where we picked the case up. The problem is that since Rotham Park was decided in 1974, the method for assessing damages has evolved, and so it was really up to the justices to work out whether this has been a good thing. In order to do this, we have to examine when and how this all changed. Rotham Park was decided with an eye towards damages in equity, and has its origins in Section 2 of the Chancery Amendment Act 1858, that subsequently became Section 50, of the Senior Courts Act 1981. The idea is that in equity a claimant can get remedies like an injunction or specific performance, but in these instances the court is instead awarding damages in lieu of that other remedy. How much a claimant will get is based on what would be a reasonable amount to ask for in return for withholding on enforcement of the injunction or specific performance. This was not only what we saw in Rotham Park, but the decision of the lower courts in this case as well. That appears to show a continuity of reasoning through time, but the dispute in this case stems from a divergence in the 2001 case of Attorney General and Blake. Blake looked at a contractual basis for damages, whereby the ultimate aim is to put the claimant in the position as if the contract had actually been performed. Thus the courts try and work out the difference between performance and non-performance in financial terms and then award that amount to the claimant in damages. While the mere deprivation of profits for the defendant is not generally a basis for damages, there are some exceptional circumstances laid out in Blake. 
Over time, then, we can see that the law and the availability of damages has broadened out, but that a side effect of this is that there is now less certainty as the courts fiddle with more variables and hypothetical situations. In the end, the justices held that there was not exactly any asset that had been lost by one step in this case, and so the lower courts were incorrect to apply the basis for damages that we have seen in Rotham Park. Instead, this comes down to a breach of contract, and so we have to think about how to put the claimant in the position as if the contract had been performed. This is difficult because it is hard to say how much money one step would have made if they didn't face competition in the form of Morris Garner's new company, Positive Living. Nevertheless, this is a common question that courts face, and so while they cannot be 100% accurate, they can offer a good estimate of damages. Overall, the effect of this decision is to severely limit the availability of Rotham Park damages in future cases. Realistically, they are now only likely to be available, where it would clearly be in lieu of an injunction, as in Rotham Park itself, or where the courts are looking at an asset that has a financial value, such as an intellectual property agreement. In some ways this does make sense, because in this type of situation, the aim is to compensate the claimant, rather than to punish the defendant. However, this does still leave open a number of questions, and perhaps the most central of these is what exactly is to be classified as a financial asset. The Supreme Court did give us a couple of examples of assets, such as confidentiality agreements, but it is not exactly clear why that does have value, and yet something like the covenant that we saw in this case does not. The approach of the lower courts whereby they attempted to work out how much it would cost to relax that part of the contract is hardly abhorrent and in many ways makes an awful lot of sense. This confusion potentially opens up a whole raft of new case law as judges come to grips with what has financial value and what does not. The other impact of the decision is on claimants who will now struggle to get significant compensation for breaches. Furthermore, this will be especially difficult where there has not actually been any direct financial loss. Claimants will instead be reliant on the courts making a fair assessment of the loss, based on other factors that are open to a much wider degree of interpretation. Well, thank you very much for tuning into this episode of the UK Law Weekly Podcast. Thanks as ever to bensound.com who provides the music. Reminder, you can catch me on YouTube at youtube.com forward slash Marcus Cleaver. And also check out the website at uklawweekly.com where you can sign up to the mailing list. Well, that's all from me. I'll be back with another case next week. But for now, bye!